This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I've never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who has previously read the entirety of the EU. For our third episode, we are reading Wedges Gimbal by Michael A. Stackpole. This is the second book in the X-Wing series and the second book written by Stackpole. However, it was not actually the next book published by Bantam Spectra. Tales from Jabba's Palace, Before the Storm, and Shadows of the Empire were all published in the months between Rogue Squadron and Wedges Gamble. And it starts about a month after Rogue Squadron. Um, after none of the original trio shows up in Rogue Squadron, Leia has a minor role in this book, and we hear a little bit about Luke and Han. Just like with Rogue Squadron, you've never read this book. I think it's safe to say you enjoyed Rogue Squadron better than you expected to. Sure, but we all know that my bar is always set extremely low. Fair enough. But because you did like it more than you thought, did that change expectations for this book in any way? Yeah, I was definitely looking forward to seeing where the series was going next. Um, I had a little bit of a concern that it was going to become, let's say, formulaic space battles. And that really didn't turn out to be the case, did it? <laughs> no. Uh, one thing I've always loved about this series is each book's plot is very unique. There's not one that's similar to the next. Yeah. Let's talk about the plot of this book. So this is a book about pilots, and we have a few new characters to introduce. There are two new pilots who join the squadron. Errol Numb, Captain Errol Numb, and Pash Kraken. Errol is the sister of Nian Numb, who flew with Lando at the Battle of Endor. And Pash is the son of legendary General Kraken, head of Alliance Intelligence. This is necessary because we remember some members of Rogue Squadron died in the first book. And also, apparently between books one and two, another member passed away. Uh, we learned at the end of book one, Broar Jace was going back to Thyfera to rejoin his family. Uh, a family member of his was very sick, very infirm, maybe dying at that point, I forget. But he was going back to see them. And it's revealed that return trip didn't go so well. We don't actually see this, but Broar's fighter is captured mid-flight and destroyed. Allegedly. They do drop it in there very casually, don't they? They do. I almost feel like Stackpole thought it was a foregone conclusion at the end of the first book, once we see from the baddies' perspective that they're planning this, that it's absolutely going to happen. But to me, it wasn't. It was a, There was a question to me. So when in a single line they just remark, oh, Broar's dead, I was like, how? When? Why? And then a little later on, they confirm his death a little more. But it's still pretty... It's tossed in pretty casually. It is. Anyway. It's also revealed later on in the book that uh, Isar didn't want him dead. She wanted him captured. And for some reason that didn't happen. Other early events in this book, we learn a lot about Emtree. So you may remember he had that shut up protocol and a scrounging protocol. And it was just kind of weird in the first book. And you were very... Suspicious. I was going to say concerned, but suspicious works. Suspicious <laughs> works very well. So do you want to talk about what do you think about Emtree now after what Corrin and Tycho find out about him? Still suspicious. Still suspicious? It just, it seemed too neat to me. Tycho and Corrin kind of go back and forth and explain what they've been able to uncover about Emtree's history. He was on Hoth. Um, whoever was, whatever human or person was in charge of him there was trying to help get the Alliance resupplied and so created some kind of program in him. This, that was the scram system. Yeah. The shut up system, I don't think they had figured out yet. The no, they hadn't. they had at least figured out. Yeah. It just seemed, so this, this is something that just turns up red flags for me whenever anything happens, quote, off screen. So they uncovered all this information about M-Tree between the two books, you know, in the months that have, in the month that has passed. And I just thought, it's just too easy. Like, there's still something weird about him. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Also, Korn and Tycho get to talking about Tycho's past. Korn mentions, while well, M-Tree was very easy to figure out his past, Tycho's past was behind some red tape that even Korn and Whistler couldn't break into. And in Tycho's defense, he's very open about it. He says, I'll tell you whatever yeah, you want to know. And it's, it's very tragic. We, we learned a little in the first book how he was captured, he was taken to a prison called Dusankia, eventually taken somewhere else, and escaped back to the Rebellion. But I feel like from the reader's perspective at that point, we don't fully understand why everyone is so suspicious of him. In yes. this conversation, though, that kind of comes to fruition. He could be a literal sleeper agent and not know it. Yeah, so Lysenka is kind of Isard's pet project, if you will. If she ever could have such a thing as a pet, this would be it. Playground. It's a playground. Yes, her pet playground. For a mad scientist. Yes. Where basically she will take people, break them down, and form them into a sleeper agent. So in the past, whenever a Lusankia agent is struck, they never once mentioned being at Lusankia before. They only say Lusankia after they've done the deed. So this is the anomaly, because Tycho remembers being at Lusankia. And talks about it. And talks about it. Which, completely new. But because he remembers it, and what little is known about it, that terrifies the rebellion, because even Korn, from his Corsac days, has some experience with Lusankia, and the brainwashing they do is it's terrifying and it's really scary. And it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of what was done to Dev in Bakura. Sure. But in a, in a different way, but just equally tragic. Villains in the Star Wars universe do seem to have a preoccupation with forcing their victims to do things that they wouldn't do if they had a choice. Even going back to the original trilogy with Palpatine trying to turn Luke. Yeah. It's always, it's always about control. It's always about manipulation. Corrin... I thought, before this point, was not so put off by the restrictions on Tycho. I mean, he didn't know very much about it, but he didn't seem to have a feeling about it one way or the other. I think from this point forward, he has feelings. He's, he's now more suspicious of Tycho than he was. Yeah. Because of his cop background and, again, his low experience with uh, the Lusankia prisoners. And, to be fair, I was more suspicious of Tycho at this point, too. Absolutely. Not because I think that he is a bad person. But I think they could, they being the Empire, make him a bad person. Yeah. You don't know you're a bad person and you are just... They, they don't know what his trigger is. Again, his trigger, it could be if you see Mon Mothma, shoot her in the head, no questions asked. It could be take out Akbar. It could be fly an X-Wing into Home 1. It could be kill Borsk, which would be a relief for all of us. Fair enough. So <laughs> we, we also do get to meet the Provisional Council in this book. This is where Leia pops up. Um, she and Wedge actually have a pretty nice conversation. There's a lot of political maneuvering, though. Yeah, and, and we are introduced to your new favorite Bothan, Borsk Thalia. I gotta ask you, why are, why do they insist on introducing me to aliens that I'm not gonna like? Like the bar is, as I said, the bar is low. You got for, oral in the first. Book. I know. I'm just saying, they. It feels like they want me to dislike Bothans because Borsk is the most annoying politician-y politician that. Okay, I'm exaggerating. He's probably not the most annoying, but he's pretty annoying. There's a strong argument for that in this series, <laughs> in this universe. True, but later in the book we're going to get to another Balfin character who is much more heroic and very different than Borsk. She doesn't start off great, though. No, but she doesn't know who the rogues are. Fair. So but we'll, we'll, we'll get, to, get to that shortly. And then the other big thing that shows up early in this book is we finally fi learn why Isar took Derricote off Black Moon. I think you're missing something, actually. Oh, am I? We gotta talk about what their plan is. Of course. Duh. <laughs> They're just gonna take Coruscant. Yeah, that, as discussed in the first book, 
Coruscant will give the Rebellion legitimacy in a way that they have never had. It will likely make other systems and planets flock to their banner. So they need this planet. And they've decided they need it now. soon. Maybe not quite now because they are planning this upcoming mission to be largely recon. It's maybe going to be a couple of months, it read to me as. But they want to do this within the year, certainly. Yeah, which, which is... at the end of the last book, I thought was absolutely not a possibility. Yeah, we didn't even discuss like, how soon do you think they're going to go for Coruscant. And I think a part of you thought legitimately probably not until the fourth book would make a lot of sense because that's like the the apple of the empire so it makes sense for that to be that the end of the series i think the other thing i floated was that they're going to take coruscant but maybe lose it or that they're going to take coruscant but there will be a catch or they try and fail similar to the first black moon mission. yeah we'll see how it goes yeah so back to what you were talking about so we learn why isar took Derek off black moon he is creating a virus for her she wants First, I'm going to say what she wants. She wants an airborne virus that can infect alien species and jump from one species to another. That's incredibly deadly, incredibly long-lasting, but can be cured by Bacta. He can't quite do that because that's asking a little too much. What he is able to do is create an incredibly deadly virus that is highly transmittable via fluid, not via aerosol. So tell me... Does this hit different in 2021 than it did when you read it in the 90s? So much. <laughs> I, I read this in 96 when it first came out, and it was scary. It was legitimately scary to a, a nine-year-old to be... Eight-year-old? You I, were young, is the point. You were too young to be reading these books. Yes. Yeah. It, it, was, it was scary at the time, but as with a lot of things, like, you know, you watch A New Hope as a kid, and the death of Aldrona is sad, but... You don't, you don't have the perspective to grasp the scale. Exactly. And now... We really have the perspective to grasp the scale. Yeah, it, it, it's it's something else. Reading about this planned pandemic that they want to release. And, and, the, and Isar knows the rogues are coming for her. She knows the Republic is coming for her. So what she wants to do is she wants to give them cor an infected sick Coruscant. A poisoned prize. Yes. Th th that's her plan, which drives up nicely with the Republic's plan. The Republic and the Provisional Council, they want to destabilize Coruscant as much as possible, and they get this... Not only that, but they want to distract from what their recon team is trying to do on Coruscant. Yes, and that the idea is laudable. They're, what they actually do, though, I don't think either of us liked very much. No. They want to resurrect Black Sun. I think that might be putting it a little too strongly. They want to bring back entities that were part of Black Sun and just sort of set them loose to cause some chaos. I think that everyone on the Provisional Council, well, maybe not everyone, but I, I think they're in agreement that eventually they will have to re-control this problem. Yes. And they're also going to get some of their own people off of Kessel uh, yes. in the bargain, which is nice. But I don't know. It, it seems a little bit like a deal with the devil to me. Absolutely. Um, the... Black Sun is... You've recently read Shadows of the Empire, and Black Sun's a nasty piece of business. Here's the thing. Star Wars is full of honorable thieves right Han Dash Rendar from Shadows but a truly criminal syndicate they're not honorable thieves it's just it's just not the way it works they're a cartel they are <laughs> they're awful Black Sun is bad news and bringing back some of their leadership is not a great idea Corrin is not happy with this being a former cop uh, and in fact one of the people they take out is someone he put away Zekka Fine Patches is his nickname Thank God, because with a name like that, you got to have a catchy uh, moniker. 
Fair, but Patches is not a good nickname for a crime for a criminal, I think. A lot of criminals have nicknames that are like they don't talk about how good they look or how uh I don't know. It's usually something about like Physical. how scary they are. Ice heart. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm saying Patches doesn't sound very scary. Fair enough. Sounds like a dog. <laughs> it does sound like a dog. That sounds like a dog name. It does. Okay, you're right. It's not a good moniker. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, uh, Zekathine, Korn, placed him in Kessel years ago. Uh, they also released a man named Flurry Voru. Flirty Voru. I, I, I remember as a child receiving this as Fluffy Voru. <laughs> so, Voru, he's a former Imperial Moth, and at one time was a rival for the head of Black Sun, and according to him, even Palpatine was scared of him, which is why he ended up on Kessel in the first place. What an ego. Yeah, but also, that's not who you want to take off of Kessel. This is actually, yeah, this is where I started feeling like there's no benefit in this particular Kessel run. If you're taking out Imperials yeah. to set them loose, you're create, you're adding to your own problems. Now, one of the reasons why they took Voru off was to try and keep Patches and other Black Sun associates in line, because Vor- Voru is, frankly, terrifying. He does a few things like just... He seems like a, a nice, kindly old man, and then we'll just smack Zekka's face into the table and punch him in the belly. So it feels like, a little bit like hiring a crate dragon to control the sand people. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you hired a bigger, worse thing to keep a less worse thing under control? I applaud them for thinking that they're eventually going to be able to deal with him. But at this point, I really wondered if they would. Yeah. And then the other person who's freed from Kessel is uh, Aniri Forge. So in the first book, we met Lujane Forge. She was from Kessel. She was the first pilot rogue squadron to die. Uh, tragically, not in the cockpit. She was killed in her sleep. Aniri is her younger sister. And Aniri is a troublemaker. <laughs> yes. She is um, She's a rebel, but not in the good rebel sense for Star Wars. Yeah. she's. I should say, she's not just a troublemaker. She is very troubled. Yes. And it's... She is romantically involved with Patches, and her parents are very much against this, but they won't stop her. Both Wedge and Corrin talk to her and say, you know, say the word, we will get you away from this dangerous man, and she chooses she Patches. Just, she doesn't want it. She grew up on Kessel, like Lujane, which is an interesting origin story for a person. It really sets you back in the galaxy, as we saw with Lujane and Corrin's, I guess, slight prejudice against her. It sort of feels like Indiri has just decided to embrace that. If people are going to see me as a criminal, then I'm going to be a criminal kind of thing. And like, they couldn't protect Lu Jane. Why should I care what, why, why, why should I think they can protect me? Or even want to help me? Yeah. Whereas Patches has, quote unquote, been there for her through all this. And we just sort of have to take her word for that. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't seen any of that. This is no. the trouble of an enormous cast on minor characters. Yes. But this was the the first step in their plan to land Rogue Squadron on oh. Coruscant. Not that people within Rogue Squadron actually know who all of them is going. Yes. So Corrin and Orisi are together. They sneak in. Uh, Corrin is a Telbun. His cover is to, they're going to Coruscant for Orisi to be impregnated by Corrin. But he is not a a lover or a romantic interest. He is essentially a sex slave, for lack of a better way to put it. And that's so, not very nuanced. It's more nuanced than that, but that's what it boils down to. It's, it's about as nuanced as we get in the context of this book. 
I wouldn't even put it quite like sex slave. I would say he's like a stud. Yes, that's a better way of putting it. <laughs> that's a better way of putting it. Thank you. This is a great part to play for Erisi because she's used to acting like a rich brat who gets everything she wants. Yeah. So when she's seen treating him like garbage and throwing fits on the cruiser they're coming in on, it she really sells it. Yeah, or like when she is going through customs, she refers to Corrin as baggage or luggage and not as a person traveling with her. It's a very effective cover. Wedge goes to Coruscant as an uh, former pilot who actually was injured at a battle he partook in on the rebellion side of course and he gets like wear this metal face play and just <laughs> i really love the disguise when she gets to happen this book. it's really cool and unique and he ends up flying in with pash mm-hmm. um it might have been that they did not end up going in together it's just that things transpired that they deemed it safe to sync up a little earlier than they would have yeah and then we also see um for the first time a chapter from gavin darklier's perspective he uh, and a few of the members of Rogue Squadron are flying in with Mirax on the Pulsar Skate. I think most of the rest... At least four or five are on that ship. I know Nawara, Uriel, Sheel. feels like kind of like Team Alien plus Gavin. Yeah. <laughs> and there's actually a really funny moment when Gavin first sees Coruscant. He's like, whoa. And he kind of has this inner monologue of like, you I, I've been to most nicely once, so I'm, I'm worldly, right? But Coruscant's, whoa. Um, I know what a city is. Yeah. This was the point at which I started to feel like, okay, Gavin might be old enough to fly an X-Wing. He is not old enough for this mission. No. but it's <laughs> Or rather, not. he's not experienced enough. But with Broar gone, he is now the third best pilot in the squadron behind Wedge and Corn. But they don't do a lot of piloting in this book, so would that really be necessary? Fair point, fair point. <laughs> And we, uh, we meet a few new characters on Coruscant. We uh, meet Ayla Wasiri, Corrin's former partner and friend from Cor- his Corsac days. Which is cool, because up until this point, we weren't entirely sure where she was. Yeah, she was one of the... So, Gil Baster was in the first book, he passed away, and we didn't know what had happened to Ayla, other than that he, she was one of the people that he had helped get away. She uh, is on Coruscant, she's working with Kraken, she's a member of Alliance Intelligence, it's a Great role for her. Yeah. I, I love getting to see her so much. There's another character who shows up as well uh, named Winter. So Winter shows up. She's going to Rima. Uh, in your read of the EU, you met Winter previously. In... in Scoundrels. Yes. She didn't have a... You didn't get a, a large sense of who she was in that book, I feel like. Other than she's not I almost feel like I got more of a sense of who she was in that book than I did in this book. There were actually some POV chapters okay. from her perspective in that book. Um, in this one, I'll be honest, didn't recognize her until someone else identified her. <laughs> Look, when your descriptions of characters are just <laughs> eye color and hair color, it could be anybody. It could be. <laughs> but her, her memories will give her away. Similar to a That's Kriten, fair. Similar to Kriten lore, Winter has a perfect memory. There are a lot of people in this series... Who have a perfect memory, and by that I mean there are two. Yeah. And that's just more than the average population, I feel. War was made by Stackpole, Winter was not. He's borrowing her. That's true. So Stackpole just likes characters who have eidetic memories. I think so, and I think Winter, uh, like other things, is another tie-in to the larger um, expanded universe. Sure. So they've arrived on Coruscant. Everybody's there. Everybody's getting their cover stories going. Everyone is doing... Everyone has slightly different goals. And they're, they, for the most part, they are separate. Like, Gavin's group is together. Corn and Reese are together. Wedge and Pash are together. But Wedge is really the only one 
Who knows that everyone's there? Is that right? I don't think even he knows. Okay. I, I think it's probably Winter and Ayala who know. Maybe even just Winter, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and a funny, terrifying thing happens uh, while they're on Coruscant. Wedge. Lots of funny and terrifying things happen while they're on Coruscant. Fair enough. But uh, Wedge and Patch decide to go to the museum on Coruscant. And just get a, a sense of what the, how the Empire is presenting the rebellion. And frankly, we could speak about this museum trip for hours and the Imperial propaganda there. We won't. We'll spare you that. But uh, while they're there, lo and behold, they run into Mirax. Who has apparently gotten stuck there. Like uh, her, her exit credentials failed. So she jumped ship and went looking for the pilots and eventually found Wedge and the others. Because she assumed, them being egotistical pilots, that they would have to go to the Galactic Museum to see what the Empire was saying about them. And she was right. Yeah, I think she was a line from like, Wedge, I love you dearly, but you have a massive ego. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you're kind of right. <laughs> <laughs> At least he has some self-awareness. Yes. So Mirix is now stuck on planet and is now much more involved in the mission than was initially planned for. So if she is the spy... Bit of a problem there. I started having intense anxiety around this point. It's fair. Because I became briefly convinced that she was the spy. Yeah, when she showed up, you were like, oh no. Well, it just, like, I felt like such a through line of this was they were they were really relying on secrecy to make this mission go off without something going wrong. So as soon as something went wrong, I went, well, there it is. And she's... Keep in mind, not actually officially part of Rogue Squadron. She just runs errands for the Rebellion sometimes. And her father is a known criminal. Yeah. With a grudge against the father of one of the pilots in Rogue Squadron. Yeah. So that was tense. Um, but she gets debriefed by Iella and And Winter Wedge eventually. And Winter. And they feel like she's not a buckethead. Yeah, they, they accept her story. Uh, meanwhile, Gavin and the others are in Invisec. Invisac, yeah. Um, the invisible sector. Yeah, it's as part of Coruscant. That's... Sadly, not actually invisible. No, uh, it's it's full of aliens, and um, this being the era of the Empire, that the aliens aren't treated well. Their housing, frankly, sucks. Um, it sounds like there are these giant construction droids that are constantly tearing down buildings and building new ones, and not really caring if anyone's actually inside when they're tearing down said buildings. And like. You know how deep the levels on Coruscant go, so you got to figure that a lot of times these construction droids take down, I don't know, maybe like the top 5% altitude-wise. even that. And everyone who's underneath just falls, falls deeper into the, the dark murk yeah. of Coruscant's hellish cityscape. So while they're there, uh, they meet another boffin named uh, Asir Sailor. And she is affiliated with the uh, anti-human alien combine. They are a group of aliens who are against humans, which, frankly, I get it. No, don't blame them. Not in the least. Especially when, so from their perspective, from her perspective, they're all at, like, a bar. And all of Gavin's friends that he's with are aliens, except for Rosati. But she's with Noara. But he's, it's, been, it's made very clear in that scene, like, that Noara is, like attached to her therefore she's okay by association but gavin is not yeah he's with them but he's not like all up in their business yeah asir needs proof that gavin is not a bigot so she goes up to gavin and asks for a dance 
And he declines politely, very politely. But her mind reading friend decides Asir, when you left after you left, he was relieved. And when you approached him, he was nervous. Because no seventeen year old boy has ever been made nervous by a woman coming on to him. Yeah. So they, they <laughs> accuse Gavin of being a bigot and decide they want to kill him to make an example. And first they're gonna lead a parade? Parade's not the right word, but like a march to oh, the execution site. A mob? Yeah. Kind of a mob. So uh, th- thankfully, Noir is there to try and talk them down. Defuse the situation. Um, and he's actually doing a very good job. I think he's making great points. Yes. he's He really gets to practice being a lawyer again here. But eventually the um, alien combine decides, nah, kill him. Um, and that's when the Empire arrives. <laughs> and the Empire arrives... They aren't looking for the rogues in particular. They are looking to round up more aliens for Derricote for his work on the Kratos virus. And during the ensuing fight, Gavin saves Asir. And this proves to Asir, okay, I was wrong. He's not a bigot. He's a dumb 17-year-old kid. My bad. Oops. I mean, I uh, again, we don't blame her. No. But it was framed in a funny way yeah. to me. Uh, and during this fight, uh, Errol is actually with... The rogue at this bar. She is captured, are, as are some other Quarren. Gamorreans they already had, but just... They were looking... Speci- the reason Ariel is captured is because the, at this point, they're looking specifically for Quarren and Solistons yes. for testing for the virus. Bad. So now we're worried that Ariel is going to be infected and probably die. Yeah. Not to mention, we've already started to get this this fear that, like, there are a lot of alien members of Rogue Squadron and they are all on Coruscant and some of them are in this sector where clearly the virus is going to be spread first. Yes. So how many of them are going to get sick? It's very stressful. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have Corrin and Arisi. And at one point, Arisi comes on to Corrin Again. Very strongly, like, super strongly. And essentially in the middle of her pulling him into bed... Literally. Like, <laughs> He's like, no. No, I'm stopping there. Something feels wrong here. I'll tell you what feels wrong, Corin. Erisi sucks. <laughs> but basically, he has this moment. Of, like Earlier in the book, Corin had this great realization introspection of why he and Erisi will never work. Is she gorgeous? Is she beautiful? Yes. But their worlds are... Like, she fits this role so well because that's where she comes from. Yeah, she's used to being the Bacta princess. Yeah, so... Even if she's not a spoiled brat, her world is just too different from his. I mean, if you mark the equivalence in our world, right, it would be like someone who is the daughter of like a CEO of a wildly successful business venture pairing up with someone who's a cop. Like, there's a clear distinction there between white collar and blue collar. And Corin, I think, has a very mature think about how they are not really suited for each other, yeah. no matter what attraction exists. And that's not to say two people like that couldn't work. No. But for Corrin and Arisi, it wouldn't. He comes with realization uh, at some point, and then while Arisi is trying to seduce him, he's like, no, 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 I'm going to stop you there. And to, to Arisi's credit, she actually takes the rejection pretty well, frankly. Sure, she does. Uh, and then Corrin says, you know what, I, I need to go clear my head and go for a walk. And then he proceeds to get really lost. He does. Which is weird for a Corsac man. It is. But before that, um, we have a brief snippet of Lore and Isar talking. Mm-hmm. And Isar tells Lore, you need to go talk to our spy. In person. Face to face. In the flesh. Lore says, okay, I'll go talk to the spy. I should also point out, 
earlier in the day, while Winter, Corrin, and Arisi were on planet, Corrin saw Lore from afar. Yeah. Lore doesn't see him, but it really freaks out and kind of just jostles Corrin seeing Lore like that. And it should, because they were sitting around in public discussing their backstories. Yes. Not their fake backstories. Their real ones. Their real backstories. The most uncomfortable scene of the series. Really very strange, but um, that is the scene where Corrin learns that Tycho was basically on the the video Skype. the video Zoom. phone <laughs> with his family when Alderaan was destroyed. Yes. And for days afterward, he just thought it was an issue with the transmission. Which had happened before. And then he found out that it was because they were all murdered. By the Empire. And that's why he left. He's expressing his suspicion of Tycho to... Winter. He knows as Rima, we know as Winter, and Winter knows Tycho and has some kind of romantic involvement with Tycho. Yes. They're both Alderanian, so she's explaining to Corrin, which, yeah, we'll get into that later, but it was a weird scene. It was. So, Corrin is stumbling down, leaves Lucy behind, Laura is going up to meet, meet the spy face to face. Corrin walks into a bar. Random bar, somewhere in the lower levels of course, not like super low, but... Certainly lower than I think he expected to go. And when he gets in there, he realizes, ah, dang it. I've made a mistake. I don't have a gun. <laughs> if I try and buy one off, it'll be very obvious what I'm doing. Well, so- he, he has a couple of realizations. He's like, okay, this bar is very clearly not my scene. But if I turn around and leave, someone's going to follow me and kill me. Yes. And then he's like, so I have to stay here, but I don't have a gun. And I need to order a drink and they're not going to want to serve me. It's all this like... Pretty fun. It's very much a a uh, cop thing, I think, to think all this real fast. Yeah, it feels like it feels like everyone in the bar knows he's a cop. Yes, and he knows that everyone in the bar is a criminal, um, which is the frame of mind he's in when he thinks that he sees Tycho talking to Lore. Yeah, so Lore has gone to speak to the spy, and lo and behold, Corn walks into a random bar and he sees Tycho in a booth speaking with who he thinks is Kurtan Lore. Well, he thinks he sees Lore get up from the booth. Yes. Um, he doesn't actually see Lore's face, but he thinks, I worked with this guy, I know how he moves, I know his mannerisms, I know his height, like, Lore is unusually tall, like, Tarkin tall, but... Wait, Lore looks like Tarkin? He never brings that up. I cannot believe <laughs> someone who would seriously, like, I understand he's going for this, like, imposing imperial thing, but I'm like, maybe you don't want to look like Tarkin because in the end he did get himself killed. <laughs> but, you know, Corrin thinks through the smoke and the haze in the bar, he thinks, that's it. Tycho's on Coruscant and he's meeting with Lore and he is the spy. Full stop. And then he gets jumped by a thousand criminals. <laughs> and rides a speeder bike, eventually crashes into an apartment building that Wedge actually happens to be in. It's yeah, Wedge, Mirax, Iella, and Winter, I think, are all yeah. in that room. Um, it overlaps with the scene at the warehouse with Gavin on trial and the Imperials busting in. Yeah. So I, I love this book, but I do have an issue with the middle section. There's about eight or ten chapters in a row where each one ends with a cliffhanger, and it goes to a different perspective. And it takes two or three perspectives to get back to the lat, to that one you were on, but it just it cycles through them all just... It's, it's very exhausting to read, and I, I wish it was a little more streamlined. But yeah. given that they're all happening at the same time, and the intersection of, of them all, I get it. Yeah, because eventually the result is that they all sync up and have to deal with the fact that, like, okay, our original plan 
not working. Yeah. And we've also gotten a coded message from the Alliance that they want to move now. But also, Corin tells Wedge, I saw Tycho talking with Lore. And Wedge's response is, that's impossible. Tycho is, is dead. Presumed dead, at least. Uh, Warlord Zinj, uh, who is, who's made, a, he never expected an appearance, but his forces make a number of appearances throughout this book, and his threat's clearly escalating. Zinj blew up the base where Tycho was. So Corrin says, okay, Tycho's dead, I made a mistake. And it was, it was in, in a time frame such that Tycho could not possibly have been on Coruscant because the attack on Nosquiver happened like that happened like five days prior or, or even something. less than that it was very close and actually we learned about the attack before we learned about Tycho's death yeah from wedge and we knew that for some reason rogue squadron had been uh relocated before they went to coruscant they had been relocated from borleas mm-hmm. to nosquiver i have no idea if i'm pronouncing that right no, i'm sure not whatever <laughs> whatever it's the planet star wars names <laughs> You know, someone back at Alliance headquarters is talking about the attack by Zinj. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that point, you're supposed to realize, well, Tycho was left behind. He wasn't allowed to go to Coruscant. It's easy to miss that, or to not put that together, until Wedge tells Korn. They're like, oh, wait, I should have realized this already, that Tycho is dead, and Korn cannot have seen him. Yeah. So, everyone's not back together. Rogues, and they're actually with Asir in the Anti-Human League, because they're like, oh, hey, you're Rogue Squadron, you're here to help us. We want to help you. We'll work with you humans. And we find out that Asir actually went to the Bothan Military Academy at some point. Yes. Marshall Academy. Marshall Academy? Yeah. So I military team, but it's Marshall apparently. Clearly there's a little bit more to her than just an insurrectionist on Coruscant, but we're not sure what. And also joining them is Voru and Patches and all the criminals they released. And they're all putting together a plan to uh, infect Coruscant's computer system, which is very difficult to do because there are so many redundancies and backups that it's nearly impossible. And their end goal is that they have to take down the planetary shields. Yeah. Because otherwise there is no real hope for an assault on this planet. Yes. Coruscant's planetary shields are some of the best in the galaxy. I I think technically in the EU later on we see planets that are the equal or even better than Coruscant. I don't remember for sure but I feel like there is. But right now it seems very much like they are the best in the galaxy. Possibly by a very large margin. So they gotta come down... For any attack to succeed. For for Coruscant to even be threatened. Yes. Without that, you then will have a several-month-long siege, and the aliens in the Invisex sector will die much quicker than any of the Imperial humans will. As expected. Yeah. Like, that's one of the parts of their mission, to figure out what resources and supplies are there, and if, if there is a siege, can people survive it? And clearly, the alien population cannot. So they have this plan to slip into these computer memory cores during a, a like transfer like there's some mm-hmm. kind of overnight refresh thing that has to happen i'll admit i got a little lost in this section <laughs> i was like they have a plan great the plan didn't work fine <laughs> so i started learning about this plan because there's now another spy patches yeah. has betrayed the rebellion shocking i didn't see that one coming i had no idea right? that was going to happen <laughs> She gives the order to Lore, you know what? I want them to take the planet. I don't want them to take it now. Stop the plan. Kill Rogue Quadrant. And Lore's like, yeah, buddy. And they kill Corn finally. <laughs> That's Huzzah. the only thing I've ever wanted in my entire life. <laughs> so the plan starts. 
It fails because Patches betrays them, the Imperials show up, and the rogues are probably going to die. And then a miracle happens. Tycho's not dead. He's in fact flying a fighter and shooting Imperials off of the rogues' backs. On Coruscant. With entry. When I tell you my suspicions of that droid went up in this scene yet again. Not Tycho, <sighs> just just Entry. No, both of them. Okay. I mean, at this point I was like, oh God, who is the spy? <laughs> it was it was really making me pretty crazy at this point. Stackpole does a very good job of just driving the reader nuts of who is the spy. Yeah, you you feel like one possibility has been eliminated and then suddenly they're not dead. This is part of the whole death fake out cycle that we really it gets old. It starts th- ramping up in this book. <laughs> it does. Uh, I-, I thought this is one of the more effective ones because of what it meant for Korn and his belief that, oh, if I didn't I didn't see Tycho, he's dead. And, and then once he learns Tycho's still alive, his suspicion of Tycho is just up a thousand percent. And Wedge is still like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's fine. It's fine. He was meeting with Lainutka. So yeah, Wedge is like, no, no, no. He was meeting with Someone else. He was meeting with someone to help us get ships and supplies. It's a Duros, you know, Lie Nutka or whatever. I mean, think about it, Duros do have those high cheekbones, kind of like Tarkin does. They do, but again, like, Horn didn't see his face, so... And Duros are also very tall. And also, I should point out, during this scene, one of my favorite things happens. Uh, so, as, as the rogues are scrambling away, they kind of break off into different groups. And one group is Corin, Mirax, Patches, and Aniri. And Patches pulls a gun on Corrin and is about to kill him. And then who saves the day? Aniri. Aniri realizes Patches was just using her, didn't really care for her in any shape, way, or form. She was convenient. He left her behind to die. The rogues actually saved her. We know this because um, we've seen so little of her in this book that as soon as she kills Patches, she has to explain her motivations to Corrin. Because otherwise it would be unclear. And that's bad writing. <laughs> Do you want more chapters and more perspectives? We can have that. I don't. I want a more streamlined number of perspectives. Fair enough. I don't... Any Anytime you have to have a character explain their motivations out loud in a number of paragraphs, I think something has gone wrong. That's, it might just be me. I don't think it is, but... <laughs> but I, I mean, like, she's the one who kills... Like, initially, I want Corn to kill Patches because... I think, I, I do think she, given what we know about her, deserves the kill shot. Yes, absolutely. She does. Their first plan did not work. The Rebel Fleet's going to be there in like, what, two or three days? Yeah. It's and then, coming down to the wire. I, I think it was Gavin, wasn't it? He was like, the storms. <laughs> There's something about the storms. So, throughout this entire book... Um, the, these massive coral storms have been talked about, how, how quickly they form and how quickly they leave. Um, these just giant lightning storms because of all the moisture in the air. So they get the idea, hey, if we create a storm. A lightning storm. A giant lightning storm. We can bring down the shield. Just by like frying some of the power centers or transformer centers or something. And it's actually very lucky they do this for a number of reasons. At this point, the, vi- the Kratos virus is not where as it wants to be. But it is what Still it is. Bad. She has released it into the water supply. Rogues are getting sick. Other aliens around them are getting sick. Yeah, Noara and Sheol actually end up not flying the final, their like final mission because they're already sick. Yeah. So for the mission, they have a number of Z95 headhunters that Tycho has... Tycho got from Nootka. Acquired for them. Or maybe Lore. We don't know. 
Prior to this mission, Corrin confronts Tycho and says, I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to prove that you're the spy. I'm going to prove to everyone. And bring you to justice. And Tycho essentially doesn't blink. He doesn't react. He's like, I'm not the spy. I'm innocent. You're not going to find anything. And his his appeal to innocence, I think, just shocks Corrin so much. Because Corrin is, sure, Tycho has betrayed them. He's very certain of what he saw. One of those instances where his gut instincts lead him very much astray because his, well, I don't know if they lead him astray, but they're coloring his vision. Very much so. Tycho's like, I'm not the spy. You're not going to find anything. And just, he says it in such a matter of fact way that it, it kind of like, it surprises Corn a little bit. Well, he's also a little hurt. <laughs> De- like he definitely plays a little like a kicked puppy. Because he came up to Corrin being like, I'm glad you're flying this ship. I checked it over myself. It's the one that I was flying earlier. It'll work great for you. And Corrin's like, you're a traitor. <laughs> and we, should, we should point out the person, Pash Kraken, overhears this conversation. He's, he's close by and hears it. And then Corrin goes and complains to Eresi about it. Before this conversation happened, Corrin also asks out Mirax. On a date. They've realized, he's realized just, you know, Arisi is not the person for him. He knows that for sure. He doesn't know if Merrick says, but he knows he at least wants to explore it and see if there's something that can be, if it can grow into more. Which is interesting to me because Mirax is a criminal and Corrin is a cop, or at least he was. I would not classify Merrick as a criminal. She is a smuggler. Rebels are criminals too. I never said they weren't. So Corrin is a criminal. That's true. He's, I am a little hard on him. He's not actually a cop anymore. It's just sometimes, like in this scene, he's behaving a lot like a cop. Yes. That's what he grew up as. To create a storm, they need to get a lot of moisture into the air. Coruscant has these giant orbital mirrors. And there's a cousin of Nita on one yeah, of them. Yeah, so Captain Nita, one of the many people Darth Vader strangles in Empire Strikes Back. Uh, his cousin is on this, one of these mirrors. And he's like, I will restore honor to my family name. Because apparently, after Captain Nia's death, most of that family was wiped out. And his cousin's like one of the few left. And he kind of seems like the family idiot a little bit. <laughs> Poor guy. He was too insignificant to murder. Essentially. <laughs> he's trapped on this orbital mirror forever. And he thinks it's a great honor. Yes. He's very happy he's like, there. I will restore honor to my family name with the Empire. There are these giant reservoirs on Coruscant. Um, I'm just like, I'm being told by the Empire to evaporate all this water. Huzzah, I will do this. I will direct the sun this way. <laughs> and by creating this, by evaporating all this water, they create this giant storm to bring down the shields. And then he's like, oh, I messed up. My bad. <laughs> and then one of his uh, workmates is like, you know what? You could when the rebe- If the rebellion shows up, just tell them... Captain Nita was a spy. You were with him in it all along. <laughs> you were trying to help. It's a very amusing scene. Yeah. Um, so, the shields start coming down. Unfortunately, not 100%. There's actually a... Uh, Some kind of station. Station platformer something that is being blown up. That's at the heart of, this, of the biggest electrical storm on Coruscant in centuries, if not ever. Of course... I think it was in recorded history, they said, at some point. So, like, they did have to come up with a reason to have a, an ultimate flying battle at the end of this. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. So, Wedge desperately wants to, to fly into this, but he's not on... He's not on a ship. But there's still a crazy Corellian who is Corrin. <laughs> and only a Corellian is crazy enough to fly through this lightning storm. So, 
Corrin flies it. He makes the shot. It's not enough. He flies it again. And using targeting data, he feeds back to... Was it Tycho he fed it back to, I think? I Someone else. I don't remember. Um, they're able, able to take this uh, station out. Shield comes down. Rebel fleet shows up. Everything is fine. Except all of a sudden, Corrin loses control of the ship. Well, before that... He starts detecting this phantom signal that oh, he yes. thinks is maybe one of the ties that was pursuing them or some other problem. So he keeps trying to catch it. And as he pursues it, he loses control yeah. of his ship. Very like slowly, every single system locks down. He no longer has manual control. And he crashes. And we, no one else ever sees this phantom signal. No, Corn just is him. the only one. Yeah. So he crashes into a building and it comes down. Everyone thinks Corn is dead. Yeah. Did you think he was dead? I didn't have an opinion. I was like, show me the body, Fair basically. Enough. And I, okay, was, wedge. I was proved right by the end of the book. Yes. So this is towards the very end of the book. The Rebel Fleet shows up and very, very quickly win the battle and take Coruscant. Like, absurdly quickly. They actually take control of the, uh, again, the Orbital Mirror. And they reflect it into one of the Golan space stations around Coruscant. And basically just fire a concentrated beam of sunlight through it and put a giant hole in it. Yeah. In a pretty spectacular thing I would love to see um, on screen someday. Yeah. But you know what I also appreciate about this battle and a lot of battles in these books? They're often flagging down the Imperials and saying like, hey, we've done you an a just undoable amount of damage. Surrender. Do you need help? Yeah. <laughs> Can we pick you up? And often the Imperials are like, yes, please. Yeah, can I get a ride, Mom? <laughs> yeah, the, the Republic are they're, they're good guys for the most part. I just I, I say that because I feel like we don't really see that in the films. I, um, I feel like in the films, whenever there is a fight, the ship blows up and that's kind of it. Like yeah. the Death Star blows up, battle over. Yeah, Star Killer base blows up, and battle argu- over. Arguably, at the point where they blow up the first Death Star, they no longer have the resources to pick up any Tie pilots that might be floating around the system, like Vader. Imagine that. <laughs> um, Rebel Fleet to Darth Vader. Do you need a, an assist? Over? <laughs> that would be fun. That would have been hilarious. I'm mad now. I want that. Yeah. Right the thick. <laughs> so, the Rebellion takes Coruscant. The Republic takes Coruscant. There's a great speech at the end talking about the sacrifice, Corn's death, yada, yada, yada. And then we get the epilogue. And this epilogue, first of all, actually really scared me. I'm not sure it scared you, but it scared me. Nah. No? <laughs> so, this epilogue makes two things very clear. First, the Kratos virus was released, and a lot of people are sick. Okay, that part's scary. I thought you were just talking about the corn stuff. Thankfully, um, some the rogues who were sick have received back to treatment, and Noara, Shield, the others, they will be okay. Er, they even found Errol. Errol was alive. Yeah. I mean, she was being experimented on, and will probably have horrific PTSD for the rest of her life, but... She's alive. The second thing is that... Corn is not dead. Surprise. What he is, though, is captured by Isard, and they're on a private shuttle to Lusankyo. And that's what terrifies, terrified me, because throughout this book, they make it very clear, Lusankyo is... It's a bad place. Yeah. It worried me what they were going to do to Corrin in the future. I thought it could be fun. There's a lot of angst potential you know, there. 89-year-old me versus late 20s you. Two very different people. I'm just going <laughs> to put it that way. How's that? That's fair. I just saw I saw such great potential at this point. Because I thought, if Corrin really goes to Luzankia and has similar experiences to Tycho and somehow escapes, which at this point I assumed that he would, 
then he's really going to have to put his money where his mouth is. He's not just going to have to prove... His own innocence. ...that Tycho is a criminal. He's going to have to prove the same in reverse for himself. And I just thought that that would be really painful, and I like that in a book. <laughs> I married a monster. <laughs> Characters have to feel pain to grow. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> they very much do in this series. They do. So, that's the the plot of the book. Now let's dig a little deeper. What did you what did you like and not like about this book? Was it better than Rogue Squadron? Let's start, start with that. Did you like this more than Rogue Squadron, or same, or less? I think I liked it more, so... I'm a little torn only because I really do tend to like those first books in a series. Yes. Um, I love the setup. I love the disparate team dynamic slowly coalescing into like a focused group. Stackpole does that very well. A kind of found family vibe, brilliant that. But on the other hand, there were a lot of space battles in the first book. And I thought that they were well written. I understood them. But... I, this is just a me problem. I do have trouble with visualizing combat from, it, from text. And I think it's especially in one-on-one combat. It's almost easier if they're talking about, like, giant ships fighting each other than there's an X-Wing versus TIE fighter. Yeah, but every time they're, like, talking about snap rolls or other kind of rolls, I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be Dinner picturing. Rolls. <laughs> Dinner rolls, maybe. I don't know. Like, you tell me... Oral gets blasted out of his X-Wing and loses an arm. I understand that. I get it. Anyway, this one was a little better for me just because there was less of that heavy action. I I think I liked this book so much because of how different... Like, I love Rogue Squadron, but the trap for this kind of series to fall into is to just keep doing Rogue Squadron again and again and again. And this is a completely different book. Yeah, the trap is to become very formulaic, but I thought that this did a great job of deviating from that. I mean... Even when they were putting the squadron together in the first book, one of the criteria was that these people all have to be great pilots, but they also have to have other skills. Mm -hmm. And they really utilize those other skills in this book. Now, I sort of hesitated because I feel like in that middle section where a bunch of stuff is happening, I didn't get a true sense of what exactly they were doing on Coruscant. They were gathering intel... Yeah. Yeah, even if you were like, eh, they did some stuff. I don't know. Yeah, like, they, like they figured out how much food was available for the aliens versus the Imperials. Like, their supply. Sure. Where uh, security was stationed, etc. But that stuff didn't feel very much like the focus in the actual scenes. Yes. It felt like we just got back from reconnoitering around the Transformer thing or something. Like, they didn't really... I, I don't know. I agree. It wasn't the focus. Like, the, the example is that conversation between Winter and Corrin about Tycho. Like, they were there to get an idea of how, of what Imperial security was like in that area. And they did get that. But other than the moment of seeing Laura, that wasn't really the focus. It was their conversation that was the focus. And even, like, getting a sense of Imperial security in one area. It was, I think, near Imperial Palace. So it was a pretty important area. Sure. But it's just like, this is such a huge planet. Like, maybe you could target something that's further away from a big evil castle. I don't know. Just a suggestion. <laughs> so, what else would you like on this book? Or dislike? So, let's see. Corrin remains a pretty big POV character. Mm-hmm. I felt like he took steps both forward and back in this book. Either more than the other or about equally? I almost feel like he moved more backwards. Really? <laughs> On the one hand, I feel like 
his handling of Arisi is really mature. That's fine. But on the other hand, he still has... This was his problem in the first book, was learning to trust his squad mates. Something and, Jane called him on. Yeah, and not be such a loner. And I felt like he had made progress towards that. But in this book, he pulls back really hard on it. Learning Tycho's full story really shakes that for him, I think. And then throughout the book, he's constantly trusting his gut over other people again. I think it also doesn't help that for a lot of the book, he's either by himself or he's with Arisi. Yeah. He doesn't get to be with the rest of the squadron. Yeah. I think that was, interestingly enough, a mistake on Wedge's part. Or whoever, I forget. Like, Wedge had some control over who was assigned where, but... Well, that would make more sense if it was Kraken's mistake. Wedge knows better what uh, lessons Corrin needs to learn and maintain. Except I don't think... I'll I'll say this later, after the next book. (laughs) Okay. So, even when Wedge is like, Listen, I know you think you saw Tycho talking to an Imperial, but I trust him. And I'm asking you to trust me. Corrin doesn't. Like, he has, he has moved back in that way, I think. He has fallen back on, like, the cop instincts, his habits from Corsac. And it, it makes sense he does because of what they're doing. Like, he's not an X-Wing, he's not free. He is trying to infiltrate and take down a planet. Yeah. It makes sense to rely on those instincts. Yeah. So I both liked and disliked that. I liked it because it makes sense on a character progression level. Mm-hmm. I just liked it because it made me really frustrated with Corrin, but I think at some points we are supposed to be really frustrated with Corrin. Yeah, he is, he's not a perfect character. No, he's not, he's not a perfect person. Far from it. Yeah, so far from it. So uh, one of the things that I like about this book is, this is not his first appearance in the EU, but where we're reading in the timeline, this is Borsk's first appearance. And Borsk is a character I love to hate for so many reasons. And also, but even more importantly than that, I think it's just a very important character to show. We so often see the Rebellion and the Republic through Luke's eyes, through Leia, through Han, through Wedge, Mon Mothma, Akbar. These very altruistic characters fighting the good fight, sacrificing themselves. Not just altruistic, but like legendary. Yes. Borsk is not altruistic. He is a politician. He's a politician's politician, and you're supposed to dislike him. But I think it's very important to show... A character like this exists in the Republic. They're not all Leia and Mon Mothma doing everything they can to help. There are politicians and other people like him who are, they want to help, they want to change the galaxy, but also help themselves at the same time. I agree. Um, I like that also. And I think it's accurate. I think that in an organization like this, you have to have some people who are willing to compromise on morality in the name of getting things done. I don't necessarily think that his castle plan was the way to do that, but the the problem I have with it is I don't feel like we get the same thing from the Empire's side. This ties into one of one of my thoughts, which is that it's unclear to me what the Empire's endgame is here. I would say the Empire's, I would say Isard's. Sure. Isard's Empire, let's say then. Because... They are so blanketly, thoroughly evil. You cannot manufacture a virus which targets only non-humans. And non-humans on the planet that you currently occupy at that. And I think 
have any real room to say this is for the greater good. It, it gets even worse. At one point, Laura tells Derek Coet, the virus cannot infect Wookiees. Because they're good slave labor. Yeah. Not because we like them, but because they're good slaves. They're useful to us. So I am not seeing any the same shades of gray in Imperial leadership that mm-hmm. I am seeing in the Provisional Council. And that strikes me as a little weird. It is, but I think it also makes sense. The Republic, they're a Republic, they're a democracy, right? Imperial is very much the one person at top decides everything and how good or bad they are is how good or bad the system is. That makes sense. But the problem comes back to what is their final goal? Is it the eradication, the genocide of all non-humans? And then what happens to the humans? Because there are lots of humans they like to exploit too. So is their end goal a galaxy that is populated largely by machines that do labor for them and everyone who's left lives in fear of the person above them? Because only one person gets to be the top person. Yes. And that person dies sometimes. <laughs> I just, it's, it's really unclear to me what the Empire's motivations are other than being evil for evil's sake. So to me, for Isard, she even said, as she says many times, she's not about ruling the Empire, she's about destroying the Rebellion. Once that's done, we can figure everything else out. At so, this point, I've decided that she's lying. Fair enough. But I, I, I think the way it looks to her is, if she eradicates a species, two species, three species... It doesn't matter. They don't matter. What matters is military victory, military might. Once the, I, I do think she's telling the truth of once the rebellion's gone, then we can worry about how to govern. I, I think that is true. I think she still will be at the top. But I think the part of, I'm not worried beyond destroying the rebellion, and this plan of giving them a sick, poisoned planet, it's a very good plan. It's, the, it's a god-awful, horrible plan, but it's an effective one. Yeah. To, to her, the ends justify the means... And the ends is the end of the rebellion. Sure. And the, if the means is destroying an entire species, oh well, so be it. I think this is so stark to me only because Palpatine is no longer part of the equation. It was always clear to me what his goal was mm-hmm. as, a pers- as, a, as a singular person, which is I want to control as much of this universe as possible. Um, and I want to have everyone laboring for my goals, which are to bring about the renaissance of the Sith, which is really just the renaissance of me at that point, because he doesn't foresee sharing that title with anyone. He is the Sith and the Senate. So that made sense for him. The Empire without him, to me, seems a little bit adrift. I mean, I think that's very true. I I think one thing in both EU and New Canon we see multiple times is without this singular leadership that Palpatine brings... They're very fragmented. Yeah, they, they don't know what to do. Like, You've got Zinj, you've got Isart, you've got Teradoc, you've got all these different warlords warlords trying to fill that power vacuum. And for most of them, there is no long-term goal other than to be the next Palpatine. Now, how the hell you do that? They don't know. They can't. They, they don't have his singular vision or power or even charisma. He had charisma in the prequels. Oh. <laughs> Before he got all electrified and gross, he had charisma. I mean, presumably he had charisma after that, too, and people just didn't really know what high uh, bluff checks he was rolling. Yes. I mean, even in the museum, we see that there's an an image of, like, this kindly Palpatine, almost grandfatherly, taking care of the Empire. Yeah. And, like, 
It actually reminds me a lot of, if you've watched Rebels, um, the uh, holograms of Palpatine that are used in that is what that reminded me of a lot. Yeah, when he tries to appeal to Ezra. Yes. Yeah, I guess this is kind of purposeful, is what we're coming around to. I will say, and continue to say, there is part of me that likes that the Empire is just, just evil because it's evil. Yeah. The people in it are just unless they're much lower down and have been kind of pressed into service, they don't really see another option. The people, the leadership are just kind of evil for evil's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, they just want to control other people. They just want to hurt other people. There, there exists people like that. Definitely. Every once in a while I get, a, I don't know, a desire to see a slightly more nuanced big bad guy. Keep reading High Republic. And, I'm say to that. <laughs> <laughs> and with, Someone who looks like Iceheart in charge. This is clearly not the series for it. No. I, I would argue you probably, the Thrawn trilogy will probably be more up your alley, alley in that regard. Oh, yeah. We all know how much I love Thrawn. I mean, we don't all know. I know that I really like Thrawn as a character, as a villain. Uh, so other things I liked, you know, me being the completionist I am, uh, Stackpole, again, is able to connect much more widely to the greater EU. Uh, Thrawn is name-dropped. Uh, Zinj is escalating and becoming more of an issue for the Republic to deal with. Uh, even the trip to Kessel, you meet a uh, alien named uh, Morth Duel, who will show up in another series. And yeah, I, I just like that where the EU continues to expand and Stackpole continues co- to connect to other parts of it. Yeah, it does feel more cohesive in Cer- that way. Certainly more than Bakura did. And, and frankly, more than the Throne trilogy will, because of just when they were written. It was really frustrating for me. But I really enjoyed guessing at who the spy was. <laughs> yeah, um, it was always fun every night. Like, she would read, you know, 100 pages or so, and just, like, you would look over me and be like, I know the spire. I don't know the spire. <laughs> ah! Even in my, my notes, I was continuously writing, is this person the spy? Like, I got really freaked out at the point where Mirax turns up having not mm-hmm. left Coruscant, because I thought that was really telling. I got really freaked out when... Corin thinks he sees lore with Tycho. I would say that it's good as a through line, but it is emblematic of why I don't like the baddie perspective in these books because lore is forced to... So, okay, backing up a little bit. Most of the POVs are very close in in the characters' mm-hmm. heads. They do a lot of introspection. They We see a lot just... Corrin especially. ...printed inside their skulls. But when we pop over to Lore, he always has to think, when he's thinking about the spy, he always has to use epithets. Can't even say he or she. Yeah. Just the spy. Can't name them. Can't use the gender neutral they slash them either for some reason. Can't even say species. Yeah. And that's really unnatural. Um, People don't think like that in their own heads. He might. He doesn't think like that about other characters. Okay, that's fair. He thinks about... Voru as Voru. He thinks about Iceheart as... A spider. Yeah. It it just... It took me out of it a little bit. And that kind of ties into... I felt like there became a real bloat of POV characters in this book. I would have appreciated it being a little bit more streamlined, centered on maybe three. Three with brief others at times. Very brief others, if that... I don't think we need to know so much all the time about what's going on everywhere. That's fair. Especially since part of the part of the story is trying to figure out who the spy is. 
It's better for us if we know less. <laughs> but I would ar- there are two things I would argue about, at least about the Imperial perspective. First, when we're told Lore is going to meet the spy, and then immediately after, Corrin sees Tycho meeting Lore. I feel like that makes that scene even more powerful and more damning. Sure. And then when, when we're told Tycho's dead, more confusing. And then when we're told Tycho's alive, again, more damning. Second, it makes the Kratos virus more terrifying. I would actually argue against that. Well, here, here's why. Would it be terrifying to see people just getting sick? Absolutely. But seeing what they're trying to design and just the, the dread and disgust I get while reading those chapters, I, I thought was very effective. To me, it would have been more effective if we didn't see them tinkering with it. If just throughout the time that the team's on Coruscant, people start dropping and just getting sicker and sicker. And instead of seeing it in the labs, instead of lore popping by and throwing up at what happens in Derrico's labs, we instead see people on the squadron getting sick, getting really sick. And they are isolated from their resources. They're isolated from their leadership. What are they going to do about it? To me, that is more scary. That's fair. You would have had to tweak where when the virus gets released a little bit in order for that to work yes um i think it would have had to be not quite as deadly and contagious for that to work with with the story they have i don't know i think it would need a longer incubation and infection period like the the kratos burns through people so quickly i think we need to be a little slower which is actually what i started wanted but Derek was not able to do well he was able to slow it down a little bit it seems like it's about two weeks from yeah infection to death yuck very uh, another thing I like about this book, I love Rogue Squad in the first book, but it, it's very much a boys' club. There aren't a ton of female characters, and some of them even die in that book. The number of female characters in this book actually increases. We get Winter, Ayala, Iniri, Asir, all taking on differing roles, big roles, but all major parts of what's going on, uh, both in this book and in future EU as well. Is this book still a boys' club? Yes, but it's much less of one than it was before. I would actually argue that the bigger problem is not that it's a boys club or not that there are enough female characters, but that every female character gets paired off with somebody. There are a lot of relationships happening in these books, a lot of romantic relationships that they happen kind of in the background. So we don't see, I think Gavin and Asir and to an extent Corin and Mirax are sort of the exceptions to this where we see a little bit of the development, Mm -hmm. but it feels so subsidiary well, Ayala doesn't get paired up until the next book. I'll say that. Fair enough. I was talking percentage-wise. Okay. And we, we are informed Winter and Taika do have some history together. Yeah. Yeah. I just... I... This is weird for me because I am a shipper at heart. But I I actually wish we had pulled back real hard on, the rom- on any kind of romantic entanglements in this book. <laughs> There's a lot of other stuff going on. There is. I don't feel like that's needed. <laughs> But you're right, there is a larger female cast. I feel like we can't say that, though, without also saying that it is still a largely white cast for the humans. Very much so. Stackpole does not talk about skin color when describing humans, usually. Which, generally, if you're reading a book written in this era, means that there's, there's nothing to describe because white is considered the default. Yes. Cool aliens but they do not replace people of color. <laughs> and I'm, I would guess if asked about this today, he would probably say, yes, that is a mistake of these books. I would hope that he would say that. 
I think I've even seen things like that, but yeah. I mean, that is, don't get me wrong, that's a mistake for Star Wars. Yes. Overall. Not, I guess not as much in the Disney era, but I still think they have a long way to go in terms of what tropes and stereotypes they're leaning on for their POC cast. Very much so. Or like the one kiss between two women and Rise of Skywalker was background two, two seconds long. Oh yeah, I'm not Easy even. I'm not even gonna get started on like. Uh, I don't. I don't need any kind of romance in this particular series, so I don't need any same sex pairings either. But obviously, that is not on the radar. No, in the '90s, no, it just wasn't. So another thing I liked was the Galactic Museum. What a weird place. It is. I'm also going to call it Chekhov's Museum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Though, so I fully understood. So there are two pieces of propaganda that stood out to me as making a lot of sense. The first is there is a, a room devoted to the slow decline of morality and ethics in the Jedi Order. Tied to when they start taking aliens into the Order. Yeah. No one's space racist here, though, definitely. And it's attached to rooms that have been walled off that contain the rest of the history of the Jedi that have not been accessed in... Presumably. That's not open, That's not known open to the public. That's what they theorized, though. There used to be more rooms. That, to me, makes sense for Palpatine to have cultivated. Yes. Um, there's another piece of propaganda that has happened since his death where Vader stands over a, like, hologram of Palpatine lying in state, um, saying, like, Behold, my master sacrificed for you. And the stuff about how he actually went to Endor to extend a hand to the rebel fleet to stop them from stealing the Death Star to mine planets for their resources or something. Basically, that Palpatine had, like, tried to bring the rebellion into the fold and was rebuked and killed. That makes sense to me too. Um, even though Palpatine wasn't around to manufacture that unless he predicted his death, which I don't think he did. It feels something like Iceheart would, if not create a right, would order the creation of. Yeah. The thing that doesn't track for me is that there is a Sith artifact room. A Sith artifact room. I just, I can't believe. I mean, maybe I have a... a an incorrect perception of the galaxy at this point. But it's hard for me to believe that 20-some years post-Empire's establishment, that they're really trying to, like, celebrate Sith history and culture in any way. I think that that might be Palpatine's end goal, or might have been, rather. It's weird to me, though, that he put... Maybe it's weird to me because in the earlier kind of prequel era books, he seemed very covetous and protective of the Sith artifacts that he mm -hmm. had gathered. I, I feel like I remember this specifically in Darth Plagueis, the book, not the person. And it's weird to me that he would put anything out on display, that uh, he would broadcast those particular allegiances he has. I think it's just one of those things that writing in the 90s when there's not a lot known about the Sith, about Palpatine about what was before New Hope. Just trying to fill in something. Yeah, and it was a really interesting room to go into, frankly, I felt like. Well, so my complaint is twofold. One, it's weird to me that the room exists, but two, we didn't see enough of it. Yes. Like, we come into the chapter with Wedge walking out of the room, and I was like, wait, 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 go back in there. I want to see what's in there. <laughs> he just says, oh, some really terrible stuff in there. And the people with him are like, yeah, what a what a display. And I'm like, but tell me more, please. Uh, another thing, 
I like about this book, your boy, Oral, gets to do a couple of uh, fun things. This book basically revealed why Oral can't be a main character. He's too powerful. Yes. He regrows an arm. Yes, because remember in Rogue Squadron, when he went extravehicular, he lost an arm. He grows it back. Because apparently Gans do that. No big deal. Gans gonna Gans. It's fine. But the <laughs> Alliance had no idea. <laughs> no, they, no They clue. thought he needed a prosthetic. No, he just grows it back. He's fine. Well, he doesn't just grow it back. They do use Bacta to help him like, right, speed it, up it, it the process. Right, but it was going to happen without it. Yeah, but the, the fact that he manages to grow it back faster means that he gets to go to Coruscant, which is lucky. Because at one point during their plans on Coruscant, a room gets gassed. Gans don't breathe. At least not the way we Apparently. Do it. So he can just waltz right into this room and literally save the day. He's like asking everyone, so how does this gas work? Can you tell me what's required to have it affect you? And basically they come down to like, he's like, I don't respirate. I just don't. So I'm, I'm fine. I'll just walk in there. I'll get the masks for you guys. It's save cool. the day. <sighs> he's so cool. He's the coolest alien. So, Corin Mirax. Yes. I know that you like this pairing. Yes, very much so. Uh, they are certainly among my, I would say, probably my top ten Star Wars couples. God, I can't believe there's that many of them. You don't have that many. I don't know if I do. Eh, I probably do. You absolutely do, you shipper. Yeah, maybe I do. You have that new canon alone. <laughs> maybe. A new canon is much less than EU in that regard. Yeah, fair enough. So, you like them. Yeah. I, I think that they have good chemistry together when they're actually sharing the page. The problem for me was that they have a couple of scenes together in the first book. A couple of great scenes. A couple really of great sweet. scenes. They have a couple scenes, maybe a scene early in this book before Corrin gets called away and instantly dropped to Coruscant. So like he has to immediately pick up and leave. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit together again on Coruscant. And then he asks her out. I just felt like this is part of the POV bloat problem. There's so many characters and there's so much happening that to me, they did not share enough page time to get to the point of like seeing each other. Fair, but I would also argue they had more interactions than we did before I asked you out. Well, that's different. <laughs> this is a fictional narrative. <laughs> we need realistic buildup. We need longing looks. We need inner angst for so for well, there, there's inner angst at the end of this book after Merrick thinks corn is dead yeah but we don't see it from her perspective i know wedge just remarks that she walks around looking like a kicked puppy we, we can't see her perspective because she might be the spy every potential spy in this series does not get a perspective chapter until it's proved they are not the spy merrick's got a perspective chapter in the first book so Did i guess she? that means he's she's not the spy oh, okay so yeah merrick's has this whole chapter where maybe it's not a full chapter but it's a scene in a chapter where she thinks about how she's been trying to trick Corin into being a jerk to her and he hasn't been so now she has to do something about her attraction whether that be just admit to herself that regardless of how he is to her she can't get over their shared history or maybe she has to act on it so she had that pov she must not be the spy okay fair enough you're right i guess marriage is not the spy great unfortunately unless i'm lying i don't know i'm just not sold on it but it's not like i hate it or anything she also point out you are a reader of romance novels so romance build up and 
proper proper structuring is important to me. Yes. So that's why I wonder like how much that plays into it for you because you are so used to the way a romance novel works versus It's not just that actually. I find this to be annoying in many movies because often the B plot is some kind of romance between the lead and inevitably a female character. Mm-hmm. And they never feel well-developed. Unless the actors have enough chemistry. And even then... And this was true for me well before I ever started reading solely romance. This is also probably partially due to my fanfiction background, where there is a lot... It's just part of the... I hesitate to call fanfiction a genre necessarily. I don't think that's how to categorize it. But there is kind of a shared culture in fan fiction of doing a lot of character work mm-hmm. because so much fan fiction actually works to make sense of canon. It's kind of interrogative in that way. And I sometimes feel like that kind of stuff is missing in a book like this where there are so many characters and so many motivations and so much going on. Things that I feel would have been important if, say, Corin was the sole POV character gets drop to the wayside Mm -hmm. and i really like that kind of deep dive character stuff so it just feels lacking to me it's a it's a personal preference (laughs) i I do agree i would have liked to see more but i guess for me because for this book and for for the books as well it's if i I realize that that kind of the romance often won't get the scenes it necessarily needs or deserves or the the page count that it should be so i guess for me what's more important is when they are together how well do they work together and I think Cora and Merrick's work very well together. I think they do too. I should say that I have this problem not just with the romantic pairings in these books, mm-hmm. but also with the friendships. I don't feel like... There were a couple of scenes in Rogue Squadron as the team is kind of coalescing where it started to feel like they were doing some some character work between individuals, just friends or teammates. I don't feel like there's enough of that in this book. And that's because they split them up so much. Yeah. Man, I just want to know a lot more about how these people feel about each other in general. <laughs> so the last thing I want to mention, um, I mentioned this earlier, is Gavin gets a point of view in this book and he starts getting to do more, which I really like. I think he's a really fun, interesting character. And he and Corin actually have a great conversation about relationships. That's true. Gavin kind of goes to Corin and tries to be very sly, very on the down low. Not like, yo, Corm, what's up, man? T- tell me about the sex. <laughs> he doesn't. He does not act like that. No. He was trying to come at it kind of sideways, and actually, at first, I thought Corin had misinterpreted what Gavin was trying to ask him about, because I thought Gavin might just be worried about like his place on the team, his readiness for this mission. Actually, he's trying to feel out like I'm sort of interested in this alien, but like. Oh, I come from a small town and I've never seen a non-human before. That's not true, but he's... He's been to Mos once. He's... Oh, he's been to Mos Eisley once. Then everything I said can be thrown out the window. He just... He doesn't have... I don't think he necessarily has human experience with relationships. Very likely. Like, if you're 17 and have only lived on He was 16 when he joined the squadron. Yeah. I could believe it. Or or if he has experience, it's... Limited. Limited. So, yes, Corn and Corn actually tells him a really sweet story, but right before he gets to do this, Ayala and Merricks come over. So Ayala actually is the one who tells most of the story. Yes. When they were in Corsac, there was a uh, Salonian, and I cannot remember her name. Oh, it's Churtle. Churtle? 
Yeah. Thank you. C-H-E-R-T-Y-L. Wow. I wrote it down. I saw it earlier today, and I could not remember what the species was, so you got that part, <laughs> I got the name part. As usual, we are helping each other. As usual, we're a team. Yes. So, she's a Slonian, and there was the annual, essentially, police ball coming up, and there was usually a, uh, a raffle, and the quote-unquote prize was taking someone to the ball who no one really wanted to take off, and it was like the commissioner's daughter type thing. So it's clearly not really a prize, it's like a punishment. Right. And the raffle was for Turtle. It was a pretty horrific thing. Corn agrees it's horrific. I agree it's horrific. That's gross. Yeah. So Corn decided that, you know what? I'm going to, very slyly, acquire everyone's raffle ticket to make sure I will win. Because he knows whoever, if someone else wins, they'll be miserable. She'll be miserable. And he doesn't want that to happen. Like, he's, he genuinely wants to treat her right and give her a good time. So he, by hook or by crook, gets everyone's tickets, and he wins the raffle. And he, he takes her to the ball, and everyone's like, oh, I messed up. Because apparently she's just in this gorgeous gown. looks amazing. And clearly afterwards, Corin and her uh, have fun. It's also very clear afterwards they are not compatible long-term because of chemistry. They're, like, allergic to each other. Yeah. Corin broke out in what is essentially hives <laughs> because of something in her fur and the medallion that Corwin wears, um, it interacted with like the acid of her skin or something, and just it didn't work out. But There's it, a chemical problem yeah. there. It's a really sweet story though for Corwin about Corwin, and I, I really love it because it shows you just who he really is. And I love it that Ayla is the one telling this, and it's great for Gavin to hear that. You know, if you're thinking about a cross-species romance, it's not just the personal chemistry, but it's also the body chemistry you think about. Um, and he is very clearly atta- attracted to a certain boffin who accused him of being a bigot not too long before this. And of course, this is another piece where there's no thought to asexuality in no. this era. Because people absolutely can have very loving romantic relationships where bodies don't have to come into it at all. But obviously that is not on Stackpole's mind at this point. No. <laughs> Men and women are, have a healthy attraction to each other. Uh yeah, it, it's a sweet story, and I, I like just that Gavin is take, is just being given more to do uh, in this book, and that's going to uh, continue going forward. I mean, he's fine. I felt like he was not particularly present in the first book, so I didn't have the interest in him that I feel like you do. I think one of the both advantages and disadvantages to this is that since I know the future of a character like Gavin, and you don't, like whenever I see him early on i get excited to see his growth throughout yeah this is because i know his end point is this the danger of um reading things chronologically rather than in release order uh no because his end point is still also further down in the release order yeah okay i mean again i think he's fine i'm hard to impress all right so to continue your speculation of where the series is going uh now that we've seen the end of witch's gamble who's the spy Okay, my new working theory is that Tycho is the spy, but he's not doing it on purpose. This is me twisting myself in knots to make him not a bad guy, because I don't want him to be a bad guy. But I think it has merit. So Tycho and Wedge, because Tycho told Wedge this, both say that he was not meeting Lore in that bar. Mm-hmm. That he was meeting with someone else. But the way that Corin viewed this spectacle 
made it so that there could be no doubt that Lore was the one who was in the booth with Tycho. But Tycho says that he was meeting a Rodian. Someone else entirely. Not Rodian, Duro. A Duros. They look a little different. <laughs> they do. Sorry, a Duros. He never comes up again. This is also important, but that's why I didn't remember the species name. Sure. So, this is my theory. Whatever they did to him at Lusankia affected his perception of who he's talking to. So he thought, I don't know, he was doing some special mission that Wedge had given him to help sow discord or gain allies in the underbelly of Coruscant. He was seeing someone who was not Lore, but he happened to be talking to Lore. Okay. And Lore, of course, who is Isard's, like, I don't know, not right hand, but, like, important henchman at this point. Right pimple? Right pimple, sure. (laughs) That fits him. Knows who the spy is and how to get information out of them. He could manipulate the conversation in such a way that, you know, Tycho tells him what they want to know, even though Tycho thinks that he's talking to someone entirely different. I like that theory. Any other possibilities? I guess M-Tree. He's still up there? He's still up there. I almost think he could he could be a vehicle for this continued manipulation of Tycho. Like, maybe he's doing some kind of brainwave pulsing. I don't know. Star Wars is light on the science in the science fiction sometimes, so I'm sure they could come up with an explanation for this. So does this mean both Merrick's and Erisi are off your spy list? I think so. Erisi was just not around enough in this book to make it really hurt if she betrays them. Don't get me wrong, she's on Coruscant, but we don't see a ton of her. And Mirax is just too broken, or seems too broken when she thinks that Corrin is dead. So I just don't think either one of them is candidates anymore. And similar to Arisi, we didn't see a ton of Mirax either. Yeah, that's true. There were just so many perspectives going on in this book that honestly, if you were not a POV character, you did not get a lot of page time. Yep. So what do you think is going to happen with Tycho? What's going to be his final fate after all this, now that he's been arrested? I mean, I hope that he can be cured. I'm not confident. Cured assuming he has been brainwashed. Yeah, (laughs) sure. This assumes that my elaborate (laughs) presuppositions are accurate. But I mean, I hope that they don't, I hope that they don't have to confirm that he's guilty and execute him for treason. I just hope, I hope that's not his fate. That'd be rough, buddy. In the next book, Kratos Trap, Taika will be on trial. Assuming Nawara is involved in this trial, do you think he will defend or prosecute Taika? For a f- couple of reasons, I think he'll defend Taika if he's involved at all. I don't know if he'll be... I've thought about this a little bit. I don't know if he'll be point lawyer for either side. It does seem silly to have a lawyer character and then not use them for that role, but I almost wonder if he'll be considered too close to the matter to use in like the actual prosecution or defense role but rather as like an aide or something but either way i think he's going to end up falling on the defending side i don't foresee that alliance intelligence would allow him to be part of the prosecution i feel like they'd think he was way too close to the matter to successfully uh convict Tycho of murder as a follow-up to that do you think Whistler will participate in the trial <laughs> i mean he, he's got the program he's done this kind of stuff before so that's an interesting point because Whistler was still was also still on that planet when it was bombed. Attacked. Yeah, that's So maybe maybe he knows something. I mean, okay. he was the one seeding the false reports that Tycho had perished. So clearly, he believes in Tycho's innocence, even if Corin doesn't. 
Or he did anyways. Who knows now? He either believed in Tycho's innocence or he believed in Wedge's conviction, since right. Wedge is the one who ordered him to do that. So how is the galaxy going to react to Coruscant being the hands of the New Republic? I'm sure it's going to be a mixed reaction. <laughs> There's probably some worlds who will finally be like, all right, they have Coruscant. They're a legitimate government. But I bet there are a lot of people out there who are still going to wait and see if they can hold Coruscant because there are lots of warlords still just floating around out there. Yep. So where do you think Lysenka is? Somewhere that's hard to get to. <laughs> and somewhere that no one knows where it is. <laughs> so, so no guesses? I, I don't have a guess for a specific planet. Um, Region of space? I mean, the obvious guess there is like somewhere in the unknown regions or wild space or... Is wild space a thing at this point in the EU, or is it just unknown regions? It's just unknown regions. Okay, so somewhere in in there makes sense. I mean, I don't know. It it does seem like no one has any guesses about where it is, and it seems like Isard feels very safe there. So it has to be somewhere that she thinks she either can't be found or can't be successfully attacked. So it's either... A complete fortress, or it's very well hidden. Or both. Or both. Will we see Corrin at all in the next book? Oh, I think so. Isard has already said that she's going to turn him loose after Tycho's been convicted and killed. I mean, I can't foresee a trial, even of that magnitude, taking an entire 350 to 400 pages. Maybe I'm very wrong, but I feel like we're going to see him in the next book. Will Corrin be brainwashed the same way Tycho was? I mean, surely... In what way is Corrin Horn more special than Tycho Zelchu in that way? Unless he really is Force-sensitive. <laughs> I don't think his gut instincts are going to save him from brainwashing, though. I do expect that if he does get turned loose and he remembers anything at all of Lusankia, he needs to put his money where his mouth is and tell them immediately, I cannot be trusted. You, rebel authority, have to put me under indefinite house arrest. And no one should interact with me at all. Maybe you should just kill me right now. Oof. Because he's been that way to Tycho. He has indicated, like, it's... You just... You can't apply different rules to yourself. And we've seen Corn be pretty fair in that regard throughout yeah. the series so far. Not that cops in general are good at that, but I feel like Corrin has often stepped up in that way. Yeah. Final question. Do you think Isard will continue to be the villain of the series, or will it shift to Zinj or someone else? If it shifts to someone else, it's going to be a brief, temporary baddie. Like, if Zinj really comes to Coruscant, then he'll be a distraction. But I think it's pretty clear that she's the big bad of the series. Okay. May and maybe beyond, I don't know. Could be. Alright, so, that was book two, Wedge's Gamble. Next up is the Kratos Trap, which, uh, based upon how this book ended, lovely title. Seems telling. Every time I caught a glimpse of the title of the next book in the series, I thought to myself, well, I know what that book's going to be about. Yeah. Ugh, after the throne twitching, I'm sure you don't see the book I'm reading. You, you need to cover your books with, like, the old, like, elementary school oh, paperback yes, yes. textbook thing. That's a good idea. It's a lot of work for a paperback. I might have to do that, though. I would happily do it for you because I was a librarian and covered books like that all the time, but um, I can't, then I'll see it. Yeah, so what's that? That defeats the purpose. Anyway. Thanks to Thomas for editing. And thanks to Crystal for going along with this crazy idea. 
And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tk331podcast. And now, here it is, your moment of Star Wars. Uriel does not question your orders, Captain. Uriel merely wants to know how this Fex M3D works. Winter slowly straightened up. You breathe it in, it gets into your bloodstream and binds to neuroreceptors, preventing nerves from passing information. If you get a strong enough dose, your autonomic nervous system shuts down and you stop breathing. You suffocate. The GAN's mouth parts closed again. Uriel understands. If you will all back down this hallway, Uriel will open the door, open the interior case, and bring you back respirators. Gavin's jaw shot open. But you'll die. The GAN shook his head. Uriel does not respire. Ineri blinked. What? Uriel tapped his chest. Gans do not respire.